Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and welcome to episode 32, Riding on Sunshine, where we're going to take you back to the universe of energy. I know we're saying goodbye to that building, but uh, before we get to that, Hal Bowers, who is finally cooling down in Tampa after a a bout of uh, HVAC problems in, in the household there. Yeah, I don't even know what that means, but it's true. <laughs> Feeling cooler now? Yes, we have a new air conditioning system, so we're... I don't know why I'm rubbing my hands like... You're Mula. making heat. Yeah. I have a new air conditioning He's system. He's rub, rubbing his hands trying to come up with the cash to pay. Yeah. That is absolutely <laughs> true. But and piping in there from Pennsylvania is Mr. Brian P. Miles. Greetings and salutations from Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. There we go. And Mr. JT Kuzier coming in from Ohio. How are you doing tonight, JT? We're doing good. The AC's pumping. You might be able to hear it in the background, yeah. but yeah, we're good. Which reminds me, i got to shut mine off here, so mm-hmm. get that background noise out of here. Microphones mm-hmm. are just too sensitive. So. Yeah, they are. I think it's appropriate to have that background noise in the Universe of Energy episode. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're using energy. Air cooling. I would like to add, I, I have an energy drink tonight for oh. the episode. Oh, that's nice. That? Took a page out of Howe's book there. Fantastic. Oh, look at that. Nicely done. Well, as always, we go over comments and corrections before we get to listener and mail. But um, tonight we're going we're gonna to put the comments and corrections together uh, along with the listener mail because there were so many uh, comments and, and different questions that came back uh, regarding our episode last month, which, which was Mission to Mars. Uh, guys, it's been a while since we recorded. I think we, we were, everybody's been on vacation and, and, uh, and whatnot, so we're finally getting here our next episode. Um, so we had a lot of time for, uh, different questions to come in and we got quite a bit. So JT, you've got the, the mailbag and, and different things that yeah. came in. What, what do we got there? It's huge this month or month and a half. Um, I'll, I'll preface by saying a lot of positive feedback on mission to Mars. Uh, you know, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by that cause it was one, obviously like most of these subjects, it was new to me and the listeners, I was I was impressed, you know, to say that we had a lot of good feedback. Um, first one just was a uh, comment correction from uh, Mark Sheffield. He said he uh, really enjoyed the podcast. He uh, wasn't sure if he missed it, but he uh, wondered if we uh, mentioned the subtle um, throw out to the Imagineers in Tomorrowland, Flight of the Moon, Mission to Mars uh, that's there today in Tomorrowland. Um, does anybody remember that yeah we did not mention it on the episode probably because i I think this is pretty well known but for those of you who have not heard it it bears to mention uh there is a mention of both tom morrow 
and Mr. Johnson on the Wedway People Mover as your um, one of them is I believe it's when you're going over the Grand Prix or the Tomorrowland Speedway they're talking about the traffic uh, and I'm trying to remember where the other uh, the other mentioned of uh, it might be on the way out of Space Mountain it might be I remember it's like in a tunnel I feel like you hear it in, but I could be wrong yeah is it the uh, is it the Tom like Morrow it's under. like your party from Saturn has arrived give him a ring yeah something like that yeah so yep, so they they put in a slid in a little uh, a little tribute to both characters there. Yep. So thank you, Mark. Uh, Mark and I randomly chatted on the Facebook, and he's a pretty cool guy. So appreciate the note, Mark. Um, next one I have here is from Joe Streckless. He says enjoyed the Mission to Mars episode, and I have a question, uh, hoping we know the answer to. He says he was. On the ride back in the late 80s, he remembers thinking that the commander and the dad in Carousel of Progress were the same guy. We were joking that he worked at Mission to Mars and after work went home to the carousel. <laughs> Did the commander actually look like the dad in the carousel or were they just really bad at telling audio animatronic figures apart? And, you know, this that is actually a pretty common thing. I have heard that multiple times. He's not the first person to think that. So I, I got as good picture as I could of, of the dad from the Carousel Progress and Mr. Johnson and put him side by side. Oh, and I, I will correct myself from last month because as I tweeted out after we finished our episode, I spent the entire episode calling the character Dr. Johnson when he's really just Mr. Johnson. So I guess he's... He was never He's a doctor. He was always just a mystery. Not quite there yeah, yet. Yeah. He didn't get his PhD or, or whatever. So um, <laughs> He's going to a correspondence school. Yeah. yeah. He's going to night school after the park closes. <laughs> so I got the best photos I could. And although there are some similarities, certainly I think the mustache is the thing that kind of makes him look alike. Um, I, I will maintain that their faces are different um, from the... From certain angles, it's more apparent than others, but uh, it is not the same figure, in, in my opinion. All right. Well, thank you, Joe, for that. Uh, next one I have here is from Richard. Uh, Richard said that uh, he really enjoys the podcast. He grew up in L.A. and having gone to Disneyland regularly since uh, 1970. Uh, he was on flight to the moon and mission to Mars many times, and it was fun to hear us describe the ride as cheesy hydraulic seats having cheesy hydraulic seats uh, is pretty accurate though um so he has a question in 1967 tomorrowland uh was rebuilt but they did not change the takeoff film that was projected onto the floor his brother recognized this uh they were supposed to be taking off from disneyland but uh, I didn't recognize the old configuration of buildings, that sort of thing. And he says they also use the exact same liftoff sequence from Mission to Mars from Flight to the Moon. So basically, he's asking, did the liftoff scene ever change at Disneyland? And did they actually do a Disney World one in Florida? So <laughs> the answer is no. They they use the exact same footage from the Disneyland version uh, in the Disney World version, and, and that was one of the things that surprised me. But I actually thought I I had a I have a false memory of them showing the state of Florida, but we went yeah. back in research uh, for the show, and they show what looks like uh, the Disneyland uh, Flight to the Moon building in a complex that isn't Disneyland. It's looks more like a space complex, but it has the same shape, and then. Uh, so it lifts us from there and then it goes through some clouds 
And then it's sort of this generic, somewhat of a coastline, but it's still so close up you can't make an outline of it. And, and to me, it could look like Southern California. It could look like almost anywhere. Um, and depending on which side of the circle you're sitting on, it could look like the East Coast or the West Coast. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's really no way to tell. True. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, but there was no distinct like shape of, of Florida or anything that you saw at any point taking off, which uh, it was actually really surprising. So, nope, same exact. And as they said, when you landed, they literally just played the film backwards and yeah. you, you came into the same location. It was so It's so amazingly cheesy. Which is the same for, for our upper scanner film that we released. The same thing, right? That that the, the the ascent is the same as the descent as well. Yeah, on, on yeah. the upper on the upper screen. So I mean, I guess you didn't have to do it twice or make it different. It's just yeah, it's all the same. All right. So uh, thank you, Richard. Appreciate that. Um, next one I have here is a little change of pace. It's a Hall of Presidents question. We got this from Michael Yarum on Twitter. He says, uh, have you ever seen an outline of the changes in placement of the Hall of, Pre- Hall of Presidents, of the different presidents, I'm sorry, on stage? And how we asked him this one and how just instantly knew the answer. I was super impressed with how's just instant knowledge on this. So how, tell us what you know. So, so if you want to know what the original placement was, if you happen to get yourself a copy of the Hall of Presidents LP, uh, that was sold in the parks as a souvenir in the 1970s. Uh, That's a long playing vinyl record for those record, of you too yeah. young to remember yes. them. 33 yeah. and a third speed. The but you know what? Everybody's into vinyl now, Brian. So now is the best. Now is a great time I to. Like... I, I have I have it in the other room. I have I have the whole of President's record in the other oh, room. Perfect. What's on it? Just the audio from the show, or yeah, basically it's the the original show was heavy on Lincoln and. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. Back in my day, we had uh, desks and people would sit at them and write letters. <laughs> That's what you say, you tall drink of water. I remember this. Yeah. Oh yeah, the the angry crowd. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's what I say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it has the entire show, uh, the the whole uh, the whole film, and then uh, the Hall of Presidents roll call, and then on the back, I think there were some patriotic songs. You know. Uh, Mine eyes seen the glory, all that, all that stuff. Um, but yes. inside of that, it comes with a uh, like a gatefold sort of booklet in the center, like an eleven-page booklet. And inside of that booklet, on one of the pages, is actually a two-page spread that shows a picture of the stage. And down in the bottom is uh, a little diagram with the names of all the presidents and a little number, so you can tell uh, which president is which. Um, so at least for that version that exists, um, I don't know if anybody has done it for the, uh, the redo during the, uh, the Clinton era and then the Obama era and, and those changes, uh, and then the Bushes and whatnot. Cause every time a new president came in, obviously they needed to rearrange all these guys. So, um, somewhere, uh, if, I guess if you sat down with Flickr and started going through all the different versions, you could probably figure that out, but at, at least we have a good starting point. So uh, that is going to conclude our mailbag, comments, corrections, all that stuff. Uh, thank you so much for writing us. If it didn't make the show, continue, please, to write us with what you uh, want to know, maybe different things that pop up in your brain, memories from the show, uh, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us a tweet with your questions, a direct message, anything like that. We will do our best to answer your questions and get back to you.
All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler and uh, how you, you produced last month's episode and I, you, you chose something that kind of uh, gave listeners a hint that we were going to be going back to Universe of Energy. So let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind. All right, and if you guessed Universe of Energy, you are correct. Um, how? Which which portion of the song was that? That was the very beginning of uh, of the song, right? That's the very first noise you. As you're watching the uh, the movie, it's like we'll we'll talk about this. It's like the there's kind of like this picture of the universe that spins up, and that uh, that sound effect accompanies that, and then the song begins. There we go. So. Congratulations to Jessica Polarski. You are a winner this month, so congratulations. Yeah, Jessica. Yeah. You'll be receiving um, uh, postcards, which are a thank you to David Eppin for providing. So a bunch of uh, retro Disney postcards uh, from the early years. We'll get that out to you. And um, that means we need a prize for this month. And um, we've got a little ephemera to throw in here. We're going we're gonna to throw in a pack of our pins that we've got, but we're also throwing in this is a uh, a photo envelope, so if if you still have some film, you might be able to drop it off somewhere in the park, and and hopefully by the time you arrive at home, uh, your thirty five millimeter or who knows maybe even have a one ten or a one twenty four film might just be developed to be ready by the time you get home. So if you'd like to try and get that prize for this month, let's take a listen to this month's audio rewind puzzler. <laughs> All right, if you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your answers to podcast at retrowdw.com. All entries should be received by September 4th, 2017. All correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to see who wins this month's prize. And as always, every entry, regardless if they're correct or not, will be entered into our prize pot. Now, JT, you've been keeping track of the prize pot, right? Yeah, we've got a, a solid one item so far for prize pot phase two yep uh and what, mm-hmm. what what's in there so far right now we have that uh very famous 1971 life magazine that features the castle and the big crowd the whole yeah. deal on there so that's a good one all right so i've got something here from, from the mystery drawer um i've have the april 6 1971 look magazine with mickey on the cover uh this is this will accompany the life magazine really really well so it's got a, some great articles in here on the opening of disney world um and it's got some little very basic maps um a lot of people having fun on a random beach that is nowhere near florida uh, or nowhere near orlando i should say and uh, so we'll add that in there so jt make sure that gets added to the prize pot noted got that down we'll be drawing the winner for the prize pot in december 2017 I think it's probably an appropriate time now that we've just finished comments and corrections and the audio rewind to mention the consistent and growing number of people who email and Twitter at us and Facebook at us who have been discovering us and listening to the back catalog of for almost oh, four yeah, years yeah. worth of episodes here. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the guys would agree. We probably get one or two emails a week from someone who says, I just found your show and I'm rapidly listening and re-listening to, you know, the year's worth of podcasts. And so while we're sorry that you can't 
enter the old audio rewinds. <laughs> uh, we do appreciate every now and then when you guys throw in an answer in your emails or when you ask us a question from three years ago and we all have to pause and say, I don't remember. We'll have to go look. Yeah, or which episode uh, did we talk about that on? Yeah, but thank you. And yeah, that's always a help. If you're going to write to us about an, 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 a former episode, if you can remind us which episode it was, yep. that's a help. And but thank you for writing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for re-listening. And we think we're more interesting today than we were back then. But I think we sound polished. Yeah, we sound a little better. Um, I think oh. it's crazy, though, to think you could have a binge listener out there. Like, they discover one, and they just download them all. <laughs> and for, for new listeners or even old listeners who, you know, may not remember what a specific, you know, say, oh, when, when, when did they talk about Journey into Imagination? Or when did they talk about MGM Studios? If you go to our website, we have a new page now. If you go to our website, go up to the podcast menu. And the second option is episodes by topic and area. And what we've done is we've sorted all of our episodes by the, the area in Walt Disney World where they took place. If you want to see if we've done an episode on a particular attraction, that's the best way to find it. Or if you're doing research and you want to take a listen to something specific, check that out. So again, just go to our website, retrowdw.com, and it's in the podcast menu. All right, well, it's time to take you back to the universe of energy. And I know some of you are probably sitting there going, what? wait, wait, I thought you were going to journey into imagination this month. And yes, we were going to. And then when the final announcement came out that um, universe of energy would finally close its doors uh, as Ellen's energy adventure, but finally close the doors of the original stuff um, this coming August, it's August 13th, just a few days from now, uh, we decided to make an abrupt change here to, to the schedule and, and insert universe of energy in here. So we're doing a tribute, um, you know, to that attraction as it was. And obviously, hopefully we may, we may lose a lot of different things that were original elements to maybe the show building and, and, and the interior design and, and mechanics. So we're going to go through all that tonight, tell you a little bit about what it was like before Ellen, uh, started paying rent. So, um, so let's take a trip back. Uh, to the late 70s and early 80s and talk about the construction at the Universe of Energy. Going back to the early plans of Epcot, there was always uh, uh, the intention of having some sort of energy pavilion and even going way, way further back, it was always going to be a solar energy pavilion. And um, they had envisioned this building to be a, a number of parabolic mirrors collecting uh, the sun's rays into a center. And um, th that really eventually eventually fell apart. And that actually mirrors, no pun intended, or pun intended, I should say, um, a, a power plant actually out in California called Bright Source, which um, now is huge. And we're going to talk about Bright Source a little bit later. But it has a, uses about 350,000 mirrors to focus all the light uh into these boiler towers and boil water and make steam and make electricity and um that that features streamers do you know what streamers are guys i don't think so 
Streamers uh -huh. are the birds that get caught in the sun's rays, and they <laughs> stream down, <laughs> fully cooked. So maybe maybe parabolic mirrors wasn't the right way to go uh, in a theme park. Um, yeah, there's a lot of birds in Florida, and especially in that area, being built on a giant nature preserve. <laughs> exactly. Not yeah. not really a good idea. So Exxon got involved, and uh, obviously them being an uh, oil company and other energy areas, uh, things change, and they decide to change the solar uh, energy and incorporate it uh, by using photovoltaic cells, or as we know them, solar panels on the roof. So, now an interesting thing about the the pavilion is that because of the solar panels, it um, always had to face a certain way, uh, specifically to the south. Um, they wanted to have them tilted at about thirty degrees from horizontal, based on where where you were in Florida. Um, so if you look through a lot of the history and a lot of the old maps and, and, and um, concept artwork and concept models, the Universe of Energy building really did not change location at all. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of writing on it saying that it's really due to, uh, you, you know, to that having to be positioned for the, the, the maximum amount of solar energy. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I, I has, Have any of you guys ever seen it outside of its, outside of that location? I mean, theoretically, you could put it anywhere or even in the bottom left corner maybe where imagination is but then the panels wouldn't be able to be seen by the uh, guests i've not seen it uh when epcot reached the modeling stage uh i've never seen it in a different spot yeah because there were countless models of epcot in its various incarnations and proposals and i mean every one of them energy was there right right so Unless anybody has any other information, we can't find anything that would suggest that, that it could have been somewhere else. So as we said, it has to be on a rise. So the building starts at 20 feet and rises to about 60 feet in the back. And it's a pretty large building. It's uh, 430 by 270 feet with 105,000 square feet. So pretty, pretty large. Now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, people say it's a triangle, it's a hexagon. Um, there's a lot of discussion also too that it's really a square turned on its you know turned on 90 degrees and then cut the corners off but um which makes sense because there are a lot of squares in the mural in the tiles um in the pre-show as we're going to talk about squares and rectangles were very prominent in the design um so as you approach the pavilion there's these uh reflecting pools um, with the universe of energy logo sitting right in the middle and um to enter the pavilion, you would go around either left or right of these reflecting pools that had all these mirrors. And maybe those mirrors, was, wasn't there some 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 uh, wise tale about those mirrors reflecting, or was it Spaceship Earth that said they reflected and melted something? Wasn't there something like that? I seem to recall us trying to talk about that with like, yeah, I think it was the Spaceship Earth uh, myth. Was the Spaceship? Okay, all right. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't the mirrors of the universe. No. <laughs> they are pretty. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So as you go in, um, there's a, a, a wonderful mural as you enter the, the, the pavilion and um, the automatic doors would open. And uh, do you guys know what that mural was of? Because I, I didn't know this for many years until I finally really studied it. It just looked cool, but never realized it was something. You're talking about the one with the time on it? Yeah, the, where the weight clock is in the middle, yeah. No, I don't. So yeah. I, I assume it's some kind of photography energy? of of the sun and the sun's energy but i don't know exactly if it's yeah. infrared the, or like, like what the yeah yeah you're, you're, that's exactly right and if, if you look on the left hand side of it you'll see this giant curve 
right? And then the, it, the energy is coming out of that curve. That curve is just a small portion of the sun. Now, the really interesting thing about this mural is that if you go to the right of it, um, past the clock where the thermal imaging camera, so to speak, or what it's seeing as the energy, when the energy starts to wane off, there's a one of the blue tiles, and in it is a very small dot about the size of maybe, you know, the tip of your pinky finger. And that represents the size of the Earth in comparison to the curvature of the sun on the left-hand side of the mural. So, I mean, such a, a minute little detail that unless somebody told you, you would, you would never pick up on it. Um, but when you take a step back and you look at that mural and it's, you're like, wow, and you get it, you kind of see it. And it's supposed to really show how much energy there is in the sun. And again, this goes back to the original idea of it being a, um, a solar, uh, you know, a solar pavilion, a really showing, showcasing solar energy. So we're going to, I've got a lot of different other technical things to talk about. I'm going to drop those in as, as, as we go through, but how I'm going to turn over to you here for the, for the pre-show. Everybody talks about these Redox screens. Um, and I think it's interesting because digitally Disney is typically usually very secretive about who worked on attractions. It's like up until very recently, you never heard the names of Imagineers or certainly not any kind of independent contractor, uh, said like oh this is so-and-so's thing that who worked on it so i always thought it was kind of unusual as as, as i was growing up that this was uh promoted as as a radox screens and that uh a gentleman by the name of uh, emil radock was was giving credit everywhere so I kept wondering like who is this guy and, and how did he come to work at epcot so um here's here's what i found out so get ready to learn everything you ever wanted to know about radox screens and were afraid to ask so um Emil Radock was born in 1918 in what is now the Czech Republic. His brother Alfred was a theater director and he co-founded the National Theater in Prague in 1948 with this guy named Josef Saboda. Now, what's interesting about these dudes is that um, they were pioneering the use of projection mapping back in 1948, like long before we called it projection mapping or anything else. Um, Radock became, Alfred Radock became known as use, uh, for using uh, very dramatic, very minimalistic set designs uh, with image projections that were designed and engineered by this uh, Sabota gentleman. Um, so they did that uh, for quite a while. So in 1958, those, those two guys in Brussels created a show called La Turna Magica that combined multiple screens with live actors, musicians, and dancers. Emil joined his brother to co-direct the second version of that show in 1960, which toured Europe and Russia. So then this this is when Emil Radox starts getting involved um, with these kinds of shows. Uh, and they got so well known by doing this, they were actually asked to create four presentations for the Czechoslovakian Pavilion at Expo 67 in Montreal. So here we are, we're, we've talked about it before. It's like we find all these things at Expo 67 I'm going to guess that somebody saw uh, these presentations uh, at Expo 67 and when they were doing Epcot thought, oh, we need to we need to get that guy on it. So uh, at Expo 67, Emil direct Radock directed a show called The Birth of the World uh, for the Czech Pavilion. There were actually four projection uh, shows inside. There was another one where um, 
uh, there were just like a bunch of film projected on like different shapes that were turning in, in things. Uh, but this this one that he did, um, he had Yosef Saboka uh, design a screen uh, that they called the Diplorekagen, which was 112 cubes, eight rows of 14 screens. And if you can think about sort of like cubes on tracks that would go forwards and backwards out of the wall. Um, so instead of the ones at the university universe of energy that spun, uh, these ones would go forwards and backwards. And inside each one of these cubes was a slide projector. So you got this sort of moving mosaic effect, very similar to what we saw at the universe of energy, but done with just slide projectors and, but still synchronized sort of by computers with, uh, um, to a soundtrack. Um, and there's a little bit of a, of a brief amount of film that I was able to find on this and some photos. So we'll put that in the show notes so you can see it. Cause it's really cool. It's a huge screen, um, gigantic, like probably about the size of, of what was in the pre-show at the universe of energy and it looks really awesome. So, um, those shows actually had a really huge impact. They were super popular, uh, and the Czech Pavilion ended up one, being one of the big hits at the expo. So um, it's not surprising then that uh, when the opportunity for Epcot came around, that someone would find him. Um, how he ended up, I think, uh, being a little bit more accessible. In 1968, Czechoslovakia was invaded by the Warsaw Pact nations, and uh, Emil uh, exiled himself to Canada. So he continued to work there. So when it was time for for Epcot to start getting designed in the eighties. it's like, they probably just went to Canada and was able to find him there and get him to work on it. So, uh, so what did he do? Um, he created, uh, with, uh, and here's where we're a little foggy, but, um, my best guess is he probably, Emil probably did the, uh, probably did the film, you know, designed it, directed it and probably worked with Disney to actually have Disney do the engineering for the screens itself, since he was not necessarily like the technical guy who did that. Um, but I think he probably came up with the concept and, and Disney worked on the engineering part of it. Um, the pre-show um, used a thing that he dubbed the kinetic mosaic screen. Uh, it was a hundred um, sort of prisms. So instead of uh, boxes, if you picture the idea of, of a prism uh, turned upwards with a with a y-axis going through it um, you could spin this prism uh, sort of all around 360 degrees and there were um, five faces so uh, there were two if you picture a triangle with like white on two faces and black on another face you could sort of twist that so that way you could show uh, all white flat or sort of like a, a prism uh, with white on two sides or flat black or some sort of combination of like black on the left with white on the right and white on the left and black on the right. So which which is really impressive because when you have the white facing at this 45 degree angle, you, you need two projectors to hit that at the exact precise angle. And but it, the effect is awesome. You know? Yeah, just it's nothing that I've ever seen before or, or seen since then. Yeah. And I, and I think the concept of going from the individual slide projectors inside to film uh, so they had, um, five 35 millimeter film projectors shining on all this. So I think the idea is that that would be less maintenance than a bunch of like slide projectors inside <laughs> of the thing. Yeah. It certainly, it opens up for the creative possibilities because, 
you can use some live action uh, in there as well as, you know, stills. And he did. There's yeah. there's definitely a combination of like, there are some parts of the show that are sequenced very much as if it was a slide projector show. And then, then there's other parts that use uh, film in it. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating technique. And it's it's one of those things you really had to see it in real life. Yes, Brian. I do think it's worth mentioning for the people who never saw the attraction that each of the theaters and show scenes we're going to talk about are identical in dimensions and layout as to the Ellen attraction today. So if you've ridden it, we're talking about theaters that you've actually been in and they just had different stuff on the walls or whatever. Yeah, that's very true. So I find interesting about that, that whole setup is just the amount of effort that had to go into making that film, masking off what you wanted to project making sure that the angle of each projector is correct, the timing of, of turning. I mean, I can only imagine the amount of time that they spend in the editing booth. Again, this is film, folks. This isn't, you know, magic of digital editing or anything like that. Uh, sitting there and timing it and just getting it all adjusted perfectly. And, and the masking is what, what, what amazes me the most. I mean, just on those 35 millimeters, how much every single frame, you know, through some fashion or another had to be masked so that it just displays and projects just on that screen at the right time yeah so so to extend on what todd's talking about there there are times in the show where part of the screen uh would would flip to black so maybe you'd see like a diagonal line and the film that corresponds with that um would actually be sort of cut um in such a way that it now i think the black was set up so it was a non-reflective material so maybe to absorb some of the light so maybe it didn't have to be super perfect but they did work really hard to make sure that the the blocks that were black were actually actually also blocked out in the film right so it all matched very seamlessly well not only that and then you you had spacing between all of them so if if your camera is if your projector rather is just you know a couple inches too far forward or too far back or too far the the whole effect is gone. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna, you're gonna it lose throws, it. So it, it throws it all off. Yeah, the precision. Yeah, was, and if was you impressive. Wa- right, if you watch the videos of it now that are online of people you know who just had cameras up in the theater as they ran, and you take today's mindset out of it, just like you're talking about. I mean, today it would be easy to do with digital each literally each cube displaying its yeah. own yeah. information, but back then. <laughs> knowing that it, like all of this is being done seamlessly and you watch it all move and it really is mind-blowing mm-hmm. it's more mind-blowing than actually what you're watching on the screen right I mean, right <laughs> the, the technology the, the, behind it yeah now they like you said Brad, they just throw up three lcd screens and rotate them and they'll be perfect right and uh the way it was used was really incredibly smart because there'll be things like where there's a, a transition say where things are going from the center of the screen out to the right and they'll flip the screens in concert with that transition so that the screen is actually sort of undulating as that transition is happening. It, it was the coolest thing to, to see in real life. And again, this thing was massive. This was like, you know, a 90 foot wide screen that was 14 feet tall. So when you're watching these things sort of move around and play, it was really impressive when it was done. Um, and the sad part was though, as a kid, it's like I read about this screen in my Epcot preview book, and then we finally went to Epcot like six or eight months after it opened, and the screen didn't move. And then we went oh. back the next year, and the screen didn't move. Oh, and no. it actually took... Yeah, one of, the, one of the uniform things we found from cast members, you know, reminiscing is the massive amount of maintenance 
and care that that system took and frequently broke yeah. uh, pieces of it. Our, our best information is that it took almost two years for them to yep. get the actual screen ah. working. And if you think about, I, I was trying to put myself in the head of like, well, what, what was so difficult about this? So it is a hundred independent motors or more <laughs> running this thing. Cause, right. cause each thing had its own motor. I think the computer synchronized, yeah, synchronized the control part of it was, I don't think difficult, but not only do these things have to spin. If you, if you think a little bit about physics, you also have to stop them at a precise time. So you have to be able to start the motion and then stop the motion <laughs> as well. So you need to like sort of put the brakes on it in a way that makes sense. So it stops too. And I'm sure that as the motors would burn out, I mean, just trying to find a motor that can use go. Th I mean, I know Disney works very hard. It's like as an engineer to as through engineering to go to try to find motors that are in specifications that work. But I mean, you're asking those motors to do an awful oh, lot yeah. of work. Yeah. So I, I, I think I, we, when we were, and I was doing the research and I kind of remember as years went on, it's like, you'd walk in and there'd maybe be like three random ones stuck <laughs> sort of like dead pixels on a laptop screen today. Um, before they could get it so to work the, again. the official name too was um, it was a kinetic mosaic is what they what they call it. and there were no there yeah. were no seats in there and now one interesting right. aspect of it is that when the lines were big the it wasn't a problem because as they as the queue they get ready to queue people up they just let everybody in and then the pre-show would start but i remember later on as as it became you know the lines started to dwindle down what would happen is the pre-show would start and the theater would maybe be a, a third filled, a quarter filled. So some people would walk in halfway through and never see the entire projection from you know um, presentation from start to finish, and they uh -oh. missed it because they were just trying to load as many people. You know, you go like I said, you go back and when the line stretched, you know, practically past horizons years ago, um, you know, it was a different experience, and you, you got the full the full experience there. But it really did change. Yeah. Well, they would. Yeah, because they wouldn't start it till the theater filled up, and then, you know, they'd load you all in. And and I mean, it's that way. I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of a couple of other attractions they do that with now, um, where it's kind of like it's an open door until they actually load the ride vehicles. You just wander in. What's the What's the content of the kinetic mosaic? What are we What are we seeing? Yes. Let's 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 talk about the film. So the film is called The Universe of Energy, which is probably not shocking considering the attraction is called Universe of Energy. So it starts out with one of my very favorite, most bizarre things ever in Epcot history, where this tiger on a black background, almost like uh, like a Spencer's Gifts black like poster, starts <laughs> running towards the camera. And just when it's about to end, as it's running... Uh, when its feet touch the ground, there's these animated like puddle, like um, I don't know what you call mm. it, like waves when like when you like step in a puddle mm -hmm. and the things come out. It's, it's so bizarre. So this tiger's running. These little waves are coming out. That's all hand animated. And right when the tiger is about to leap, these two giant X's appear on the screen that morph into the Exxon logo. And then like there's this Tight. blue line that shoots across the background to to sort of like reveal the width of of all the screens and then this giant then there's like this uh sort of like a wireframe globe that comes in and then it starts exploding like fireworks and it keeps <laughs> exploding like fireworks and then this giant universe of energy uh like title ripples comes up is the word ripples ripples Thank is you. the word you were looking for Thank for the you. tiger puddles yes
like they they show their party piece right off the beginning, like the size of the screen and Exxon. Yeah. yeah. I know. I got to go back to the Tiger reference, though. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but years ago when it was Esso and, and Exxon, it was put a Tiger in your tank. And um, yep. yeah. that was that was it. And then actually. Yeah, the Tiger was their mascot. Right. And do you remember you could buy stuffed Tiger tails that you would hang on your on your gas cap and from your gas tank yeah and hang off the well back then it was underneath your license plate right or on the side of your car now and that they would be that meant that you filled up at sox on that was a great great point part of advertising so it was huh. neat that they can continued the the tiger uh theme right into there into the opening that's that's also in seinfeld remember when george has the uh claim your free save the tiger exxon poster <laughs> in his wallet that's <laughs> Show this card at any participating Orlando area Exxon station <laughs> to get your free Save the Tiger poster. Just give me that. <laughs> so they actually had like the tiger that like saved the tiger thing at the exit. It's like they would give you a pamphlet at, at one point oh, for really? like, like their donator. donation thing. Yeah, to like save the tigers, which I had no that's idea. Cool. I don't remember that. So I don't know what that was all about, but that's funny. Um, yeah, I think they used that advertising campaign well into the 80s. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember oh, yeah. it. And it was, yeah. Yeah. They, they bought the Tiger Tails back in the late 80s, too. I remember buying one of them. So, all right. So now we've got all that going on. So our, our good friend Vic Perrin comes on to, to, uh, to explain what energy is. The universe we know is one of dynamic forces. Its heartbeat sending a constant flow of energy coursing through the vastness. I think the the idea here is that like a crowd of people are coming in and they have absolutely no idea uh, what's going on. So it's a good chance to just sort of educate everyone. So we talk about uh, actually what the definition of energy is and then we go into the various forms of energy. Nuclear, chemical, electrical, mechanical, heat and light. Uh, and as they're talking about this, the screen in a very artistic way with electrical energy, they show like storms with lightning uh, and the screens are all moving this time. Mechanical, they show things like rocks falling down a rock slide. I mean, it's very. They you, they have the windmill, the windmills in Holland as well. Yeah. 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 And yeah, which is actually that's one of the really cool ones, the windmills, um, because they basically have like one piece of film of a windmill and then they blow it up at different sizes Uh in different positions uh, in that mosaic. So they really use the, the mosaic in, in that particular yeah. one uh, well. The unbridled winds were captured. And then light. And then, uh, you know, so they show the sun and there's some neat things with that. Um, and then they discuss how man's been able to harness the energies. Like the, the one for fire is really cool because it starts out in the center screen you see like a like a fireplace in this house and the uh the two side screens are filled with these like close-up pictures of like the ends of wood it's mm. really cool uh very dense and then those things change to be like the inside of a house at some point with windows and there's this really neat transition and that's one of the the cool things about radox direction is like there's a lot of images that transition into other images uh when they get to the song at the end there's one thing of a flower that like fades into ballerinas uh, in a circle to sort of be the same as the flower shape. And they put their hands in the center. It's sort of Busby Berkeley, but like, it's very cool the way that <laughs> that's done. So um, you mentioned something, how where they went through all the forms of energy and, and stuff. 
take note of that folks because this becomes a very re repetitive pattern <laughs> as we go through the additional theater. that's true yeah it is beat into you by the end of this <laughs> pavilion you know all forms of energy and how they're used and i think you know we we'll talk about later you know maybe the demise and and, and why it changed and stuff but it, it was a lot of the same thing over and over but um you had a segue in, into the song right we we, we end uh, with a song to get us yeah. into the main theater um, but I will actually, I will say, you know, this, this pavilion gets a bad rap a lot of times. It's like people yeah. constantly, people who I think did not grow up with this, who have just read books and maybe seen some videos have this notion that it's all about fossil fuels or it was, and it's not, it's very balanced. No, it was, it, it was very it really progressive is. too. It was very progressive for it. Yeah. I mean, other, other than the fact that you're going to look at dinosaurs and they needed to have a transition into that, it's like. Everything is is given very equal weight. Yeah. Um, I, and watching it and listening, I mean, you you hear them say things that you know, biomass and and, and renewables, things that are now commonplace in our, our terminology, mm -hmm. but back then, thirty some, thirty five years ago, was just not something you you heard. Uh, and they made some great predictions too, which we'll which we'll talk about. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Didn't didn't come quite quite true. So so now we'll now we'll go back to your song. So. You've seen all this stuff. It's like you're, uh, you're probably starting to get a little bit, bit depressed because they. What was they it? Kind of, nine minutes, right? Nine uh, minutes you're in there. Yeah, they and they leave you with this message that we have. There's all of this is going to come to an end because all this stuff, a lot of these energies are finite. <laughs> Peak energy. So, so we have to figure out some way uh, to be able to understand them in order to continue to thrive and grow as a civilization, and then. Bob Moline's song, Energy, You Make the World Come Round, <laughs> Go Round, comes in to sort of make us feel better, which uh, which I think does work. So you have this very sort of positive, uplifting feeling by the time you're done. Uh, and then the doors open up, and then we move into Theater One so, to find out what's going on. Now, um, the part that I find really fascinating about all this, it's like, so this is a nine-minute show done by one of the preeminent you know, designers of multimedia presentations at any other place, any park, any other expo, that would have been the end of it. That would have been your show because <laughs> right, it was, right. You're it done. was, We're out of here. it was really good. <laughs> um, but nope. <laughs> yeah. Disney. It's like, that's just the warm up. The yep. thing that probably would have won an award uh, at any other expo. It's like, is just the opening thing for you to, to go into a, a much larger pavilion. Listen and you'll hear the heartbeat of a universe teeming with force. So as how said so the door the doors open, the automatic doors open straight ahead of you as they do today, and you, you walk into what is uh, traditionally known as Theater One. Now, if you go way back uh, into the original design, uh, it was going to be a regular Omnimover ride, and um, as the as the presentations and, and the pavilion itself got more and more complex, they decided to go to a, a moving theater type situation now what's interesting guys is that um american journey pavilion in 1964 at the world's fair had a stadium style theater that moved um and uh it, it actually had a driver and it was if you can imagine a stadium 
setup theater just moving through these different things and and they kind of got their their idea from that and they turned to a, a company called uh Eggman automation who had designed this uh, way to um for warehouse transport to carry very very heavy loads through through a warehouse and that's what imagineers decided to use as the base platform for the traveling theater cars you make the world go You know what's so funny about that? So here yeah. we are another 40 years later. Yeah. 35, 35 years later. And uh, so over at Universal Studios, the King Kong attraction, mm-hmm. it's like they're looking for a ride vehicle for that. And they find this thing for moving around uh, an automated driverless system that moves around uh, like those um, those uh, oh, the uh, shipping containers. Oh yeah, yeah, the big fifty-three footers, yeah, and yep. and they've gone and retrofitted that, uh, with the truck thing in order to make that ride. So here we are. It's like no idea <laughs> is ever uh, ever dies or ever never gets repeated again. It's like someone went out and found another cargo yep. moving thing to make another ride vehicle out of that. Well, but it's also an example of the you know back in the fifties and sixties when they were building these ride systems for the theme parks and for the World's Fair they had to invent them themselves. They, it wasn't a matter of adapting things that already existed. And by the time you get to the design phase of Epcot and, and a lot of attractions designed from right. here on out, yeah. it's adapting things that have been developed for industrial uses or other uses and putting them in a theme park setting, which obviously is more efficient and makes more sense from an engineering standpoint. Yeah, exactly. So um, the entire attraction had uh total of 13 of these vehicles uh and when you walked into the main theater one there were six of them set up and what we'll talk about as a six pack and we'll also talk a little bit about a five pack later on um do you guys know where the 13th vehicle lived because they always traveled in packs of six there were two packs of six at any given time in the in, and do you know where the 13th vehicle lived it liked to winter in boca raton <laughs> <laughs> i assume there's got to be a, a backstage area it, like it was a garage. garage yeah. yeah. It was called the Bat Cave, actually. And and there was a piece of rock oh. in, in, in the in the dinosaur scene that would actually lift up and behind that was a mechanical uh door and they would they could they could drive it back to there. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But um I'm gonna turn it over to Howe here, uh, and we'll get into a little bit about the vehicles when we move into the before we move into the dino scene. Um but an interesting thing too is so so you, you go in there, you sit down in one of the six theaters. Uh, theater cars and you sit down you look up and the entire theater is surrounded with curtains that i i can only i think that that that, like bonnie appetite's gonna come out or it's a go-go show (laughs) i mean they are silvery i mean yeah they're they're very shiny very showy it's it's almost like a broadway production these aren't red it was like silver it was like silver lemay wasn't it yeah, silver or purple. There's, I've seen some different... I think it was silver, yeah. Yeah, yeah Maybe the with coloring. purple lights or something. <clears throat> I'll tell you, going back to, to when I first rode in 83, you know, I had probably looked at the preview books and I knew that there were, you know, this concept of the moving theater cars, but it was still brand new. Mm. So when we when the doors first opened, the first time I went into the into the pavilion and we, you know, I'm the the radix screen thing was cool i'm like oh that's it so you you walk into this room and then you see these like six things of seats set up 
Yeah, they look with, like church with, pews with the yeah. ramps, uh, with the ramps, so they could load the handicapped, uh, like the wheelchairs and stuff on it, which was really innovative at the time and fantastic. Because my grandmother was in a wheelchair, and we were able to take her on almost everything at Epcot mm-hmm. uh, when it opened. But when you walked in, you just thought, "Oh, it just like you said, Brian, it kind of looks like church pews." It's like I, I yeah. it completely was lost to me that those were actually moving. Right, and I don't think most people knew. No, so you went no. and sat down, and I think you just expected a movie to, to start. So, so when we then you start spinning around, yeah, right. that was that was the weirdest thing. When it suddenly starts turning, you're just like, "What is what, going on? What's here? going on?" So how tell us how did we get to the turning spot? And then all right, I've got something else to add in. So so everyone comes in, uh, you get seated, and uh, the the CM would actually in his spiel would tell you that the the things were about to rotate uh, to to try to give you like set you up for what was going to happen. And I don't know if that was always there or if people just freaked out it, the first couple of yeah, times well, but it, it reminds me of this story when the first department store installed uh escalators and they had a guy with a snifter of brandy that you could <laughs> take before you got on the escalator because <laughs> the victorian age people just couldn't take it oh, <laughs> oh, that's funny well it, it's uh, also that, interesting too is that now when you walk in there are are these metal plates on the on the ground and people mistake them for tracks and it blows away the original idea um when the pavilion was designed there was very little idea you had no notion that things were going to move because those metal plates weren't there originally people now think that they're tracks but what's interesting that happened is that the cars began to pick up too much static electricity on the tires going over uh, the carpet yeah, the, the wheels on the on the yeah. carpet yeah so what they had to do is the people think oh those are tracks now we're just going to move you know it kind of blew away that after they had to move the they had to add those metal plates to reduce the static electricity uh build up on the on the tire so oh, that's interesting I, I think some of that it, some of that might be lost because you walk in now and you see that like, yeah it's a track man yeah we're going for a ride <laughs> so but back in 1983 it may not have been there yeah it was it was seamless at that point. So you go and yeah. sit down, and then all of a sudden, like everything starts to rotate uh, on this giant turntable. And my understanding, Todd, is that it, there's actually uh, it's like a giant air hockey puck. There's yeah, like, air pushes it up. It doesn't thing weigh like tons and tons. It, it, it weighs ex- extremely fit. So we're in theater one. It's ninety two feet in diameter. It has sixty airbags underneath it. Now here's the Here's the brilliant part of this is that what happens is that they start pumping these air, these airbags up with air, but they don't pump them up so that like a balloon where it just stops. They're constantly pumping air in and there's small holes on the bottom of the airbag. And what happens is that all those 60 some airbags on there creates an air cushion just a couple millimeters thick, so to speak. But so much with the airbag that the entire turntable actually rises up above the theater floor one inch. And then from there, just a small little motor effortlessly can turn the entire 92 feet of six, what, it's like a, um, 600 people sitting there. Each vehicle had about 97 folks sitting that in there. That is insane. It's it's incredible because it functioned for so long. Right, right. It just worked. And think think about the infrastructure for this. And, then, you know, you're, you're down six, eight feet or something. Uh, and then when the computer would sense that the, that the turntable turned to the right location the motor would stop and very slowly they would release out the air and you would settle back down and they said it was if you were standing on the outside you actually could see um the turntable go up and down just that inch but sitting in the theater cars it was completely imperceptible to the yeah i i never perceived that it was going up ever 
Yeah. Um, That's crazy. So um, just, yeah, I forget what the weight was, but hey, it's 600 people in six theater cars. You know what I mean? It's, it's 25,000 pounds for each car. So and is that so, one of the six or all like the whole six pack? So, but it also now having sat in that theater countless times and, you know, the, the, the first curtain opens and you're watching the movie and then the rotation happens. And right as the right. rotation happens, you hear the, which we always assumed was the motor and really is probably the airbags. Yeah. So th- there must be giant compressors somewhere, right? Yeah, well, there has yeah, to be a giant compressor tank someplace around. So there. we're going to get into some of the soundproofing in a second. So tell oh, me a little okay. bit about the film before we move into okay. Brian's, and we'll we'll talk about that. So your your car is starting to rotate to the right, and then as as you're starting to come around, the curtains in one section start to open up, and uh, there are sort of these giant circles on the screen, and once again, in in the way that like Disney does this so expertly well to guide your eye to where it wants to go as your car is rotating uh these curtains are lifting and the screen is kind of revealing itself at the same exact rate that the car is moving so it's this very seamless uh transition to uh to the screen sort of revealing itself uh and the projection widening as as you come around it's really really well done Um, so that film is called The Energy Creation Story, and it was directed by a longtime Disney special effects artist named Jack Boyd. Um, he actually started in effects animation in the 1940s in the, with the shorts unit. His last effects animation job was on The Great Mouse Detective in 1986. Um, and the reason they used him is because uh, this like three to four minute film is really a tour de force demonstration of Disney's special, every technique that Disney's uh, special effects animation has done like during the entire history of the studio. Um, <laughs> the, the purpose of the, uh, of this section is to show you uh, like how actually uh, fossil fuels in particular uh, were created. So um, what you have are three 70 millimeter projectors uh, showing on three screens. The, this whole thing is 115 feet wide and 22 feet tall. So I believe the dimensions of the Ooh, Ellen you, show are you're, about you're, the same. In competition with Birnbaum here, he says 32 by 155. Oh, okay. See, there's there's a lot of back and forth here. I've I've yeah. seen a couple of different statistics, so I, I'm not sure who is right. Um, but uh, there's a number of different Disney uh, publications yeah. that have uh, have this size. So. One I, other I, note on the film too is when it was animated, they actually used the multiplane camera for it. So probably one of yeah. the getting towards one of the last uh, uses of that. They actually had to pull it out of mothballs and <laughs> and sort of cleaned it up and and probably rebuild it a little bit for this. It's actually the the largest piece of uh, multiplane uh, animation ever done uh, for a motion picture uh, because of the width. Uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, my assumption is because um, because this was uh, you know shown on three screens, they probably had to take you know whatever that it was uh, the backgrounds would have been painted as like a complete uh, single unit, mm. and the animation would have been done as you know. But they probably had to shoot it three times, like once for the left, once for the center, and once for the right. 
and then try to synchronize like the playback of all three of these so it appeared as one continuous image uh, across all of the across all three screens because there are there are many times in this uh, in this film when uh, the whole background is doing a pan say from the left to the right and all three screens are in perfect synchronization as as it's doing that so it was a huge huge undertaking um, but what you get to see through this is is a, things like how organic matter is is transformed into fossil fuels so they talk about um, how uh, plants uh, plant materials and plankton and things died and then created sort of like this snowfall of organic matter that then went under the earth's crust and was put under intense pressure uh and this is all it's it's basically every if you've ever watched a lot of the older disney movies it's like you saw a lot of the tricks especially things like some of the the package films where they would uh like uh, Make My Music and uh, Saludos Amigos, where they'd have sort of like these very effect-laden sections. It's like right. you saw a lot of these same tricks used in this. It's, it's really incredible. It was, it right. was probably... And, and another thing is the, um, the quality of the backgrounds uh, and the animation, um, all hand-done, all hand-inked. Um, I don't know if we use xerography. I believe it was actually all done um, with like hand, hand-traced cells. Um, because of it was going to get projected so big, uh, they wanted to do the best quality possible. So they actually went back to a lot of older techniques that they hadn't used in years in order to pull this off. That's um, crazy. Yeah. And there's actually a really interesting thing at the beginning. The very first you, thing you see is some effects animation of like waves. Uh, and that was not cleaned up and painted. It was left as like rough pencil animation. So I don't know if that was a, a function of them running out of time or budget in order to do that, <laughs> but it's it's really cool because you get to see you know real pencil and graphite and like you know yeah. someone's initial raw drawing. So it's it's really powerful. Um, yeah, but it's a very cool film. Uh, so it runs about the, what four four and a half minutes. I think. yeah right? about four and a half minutes. And and one of the things um, this is another one of those those things that people uh, I think kind of forget or or maybe get wrong. Uh, and Brian, I'm sure you'll talk about this when we get into the dinosaur section. The link between dinosaurs and fossil fuels is it's right. tenuous to like non-existent. <laughs> the, uh, well, that's true now, but at the time, it was a popular theory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, over the last 30 years, it's become less so, uh, just on logistics. And I'll, I mean, I'll address it now. The yeah. the the original theory was that basically dinosaur bones, dinosaur soup in the soil eventually is what made up fossil fuels. And what they've determined now is that there's simply so much oil and coal and other things in the ground uh, that there simply weren't enough dinosaurs that existed in the history of the earth to have produced it. So they've now gone to the broader that they, that while that may be a piece of it, it's more likely it's, it's plant life and, and uh, other things that have decayed and That's over the years organic, and turned into those. Organic fuels. Into those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing, Brian, in the 1982 version, that's exactly what they said. They, right. They, they were ahead of her. Everyone thinks that this, this uh they thought the dinosaur thing in the universe imagery was was a direct link but it really was they really did mention the organic matter and not so much it's funny it's like they spent more they spent a lot of time actually like working on the uh the plants and stuff 
like they had the latest scientific findings on like yeah, what they, plants they, existed then. They they went to great lengths. I know we're jumping into the next scene, but well, let's, it's, let's it's a talk good setup about, because well, yeah. it's a good setup because yeah. they went to great lengths to this scene you're going to roll into. Yeah, right? uh, that the that the film that you watch actually introduces you. Now let us take you back to the age of you know prehistoric when all of this was going on and and uh all right so how as you said four and a half minutes that finishes up now let's just think about it four and a half minutes they got to get you out of there as we mentioned the pre-show was nine minutes it took about five <laughs> minutes to get you in there uh, you know give or take a couple seconds here and there they got to get you moving so um as the theater rotates again the curtains on this on the right hand side of the theater as you go in start to rise up and as that happens Behind those curtains is a giant wall, and these are movable walls. Um, there's a number of them in the, in the attraction. I think there's three or four total. Uh, some of them are as tall as 12 feet, widths up to um, 92 feet long, and approximately 12 inches thick. These are massive, and some of them actually go down into the foundation. They're hydraulically brought down. They have to be silent. And the reason for them being so thick is that each seen it you know it's how it talked about there's this you know you're watching a, an animated film about the dinosaurs there were booms and there were you know loud noises and when we talk about the finale and we talk about the um, um theater too and even the dinosaurs were getting into each of them had their own unique sounds sights lights and even smells and they didn't want them one to interfere with the other um so this the, the these giant this giant door opens and at that point, the six pack, as we know it, which is the, th the six theater cars, um, begin to this almost this ballet where the, the right front one starts to take off, followed by the th or actually, no, they all all six progress f forward first. And then they start to do this ballet where they um, start to create a single file. Um, and as you enter, you begin to smell some things. There's a big layer of fog on the ground, which we'll talk about was uh, unfortunately later, uh, later removed. And uh, Brian, this is where you're going to take us into the age of the dinosaurs. Come with us now and experience a few moments of that dark and mysterious past. Yes, the film that you were watching in Theater One uh closes with much of the Earth's present supply was deposited during the primeval era when great reptiles roamed the land. Come with us now and experience a few moments from that dark and mysterious past. Now, you know, and as Todd said, all that kind of lays out and just as similar to today when the, 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 the dinosaur reveal is really one of the coolest things that you we, we will ever see in a, in a theater attraction. Uh, and going in when I did the first time in 1988 knowing that this was the dinosaur ride and I mean I was so excited to see dinosaurs and and you know what they might have looked like and actually operating so when that curtain lifts and you see this it, it they, they actually do it by from night into day uh, when the curtain opens it is uh, it is nighttime and as the cars move in the sun is actually rising and you get to see that the light actually changed at the time as the cars moved in and uh you'd go into this these two show scenes massive show scenes with dinosaurs before we move in we should mention the, why dinosaurs are there one and the primary reason in this attraction is 
A, they knew how to do dinosaurs, and B, it was a way to make the energy attraction interesting. Because if it was just this other stuff, it probably <laughs> would not have been a very interesting attraction. Yeah. Um, so the the but Disney did dinosaurs for the first time when they did Fantasia. They had a dinosaur scene in there, uh, in the Rite of Spring section, and you know without getting into the whole history of that, one of the things they took great care at that time to make the dinosaurs look like beasts and not cute little. Uh, dinosaurs. They wanted Walt wanted them to be somewhat accurate uh, as best as they could. And you know, it's also worth noting that you know we didn't have thousands of years of human study of dinosaurs. I think the first complete dinosaur fossil was sometime in the mid 1800s. Uh, so you know, the, over the years there were bones and skulls and things found, but nobody really knew the size and scope of dinosaurs uh, until the you know the mid 1800s and and their knowledge of them has developed since then so you know Walt put them in Fantasia they then put that one section uh, from Rite of Spring from Fantasia out as an educational film in the 50s and 60s and 16 millimeter film that would go around to schools um, where they took all the fanciful classical music out and actually put a narration over it. And I don't know if that's circulating on YouTube or not. I haven't looked to see if that particular one, but it was uh, it was actually out there and, and circulating in schools. Uh, and it was released by Disney Educational Media, and it was called A World is Born. So they reused that again. So then dinosaurs came around next when we get to the 1964 World's Fair. Disney put them in the Ford's Magic Skyway attraction. Uh, and for the short version of that, because we could spend episodes upon episodes talking about the World's Fair attractions, uh, basically figured the Wedway People Mover, except instead of getting into a Wedway car, you were getting into an actual full-size Ford car uh, that was driverless. And it would take you through scenes uh, through the history of man, essentially. It was a, a time vehicle, if you will. We might be familiar with that concept. Uh, Walt had a bunch of his best guys working on that. Claude Coates and Mark Davis and Blaine Gibson, the sculptor who who did all the dinosaur faces and, and the general look. And they again, they put a lot of work into trying to make those dinosaurs for the 64 World's Fair. Uh, look realistic as people would expect dinosaurs to look based on the research of the day. Um, at that time, after the 64 World's Fair was over, they took some of those dinosaurs. Uh, first, Walt tried to talk Ford into sponsoring a whole attraction at Disneyland. They said no. Uh, so Disney took the dinosaurs, uh, some of them, and brought them out to Disneyland and put them in the uh, on the Disneyland Railroad so they needed to know, figure out where to put these in Disneyland. And what they came up with was, uh, we'll put them on the Disneyland Railroad. Uh, when you go through one of the uh, enclosed scenes, it was of the Grand Canyon. So they said, well, we'll just make it the Grand Canyon in the prehistoric times, what it might have looked like. So this was a way for them to use the dinosaurs there. Uh, and they are still on display now on the railroad, correct? Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah, in fact, I, they even duplicated that for Euro Disneyland. Concept for the pavilion, obviously energy. They want to make it interesting and use something that, the, as they did with a lot of stuff in Epcot, 
they used expertise they already had they knew how to make these dinosaurs they knew how to make these indoor scenes and it was a good way to bridge the two pieces of of teaching people about energy yeah i think so, they literally probably still had all the molds from the 64 world's fair so it was right. just a matter of popping out another one and uh, right. i will say they had actually tried uh, a concept uh for the magic kingdom to use the dinosaurs uh there's there's some artwork running around and some some rumors that uh i don't know if mark davis ended up being attached to it or not but they were planning on oh actually it's in in one of the the planning documents um that um is on uh ted on tv's uh site the the disney docs there's a list of upcoming attractions and for 1976 at the magic kingdom it talks about the lost world uh, which was supposed to be a a dinosaur boat ride that would have been in the waterway uh, by Tomorrowland. Yes. So yes. they would have used these dinosaurs in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, they did not get their chance to do that, probably due to the oil crisis and everything going asunder. So uh, when the opportunity came to use them at Epcot, they absolutely did. Yes. So the scene that you're moving into, uh, this is a lot of buildup for this, but come on, it's dinosaurs. Uh, it is a seven-minute journey uh, through uh, two, two show scenes uh, filled with dinosaurs where you're in the prehistoric era. Uh, and you're in a primeval forest. The diorama itself actually is 32 feet high and 515 feet across. And it took them nearly 6,000 hours to paint it. It's uh, insanely you, massive. It's just it's, it, it's crazy. I, I, and I don't always know that you capture the scope of it when you're on no. the ride uh, i don't, th I don't think you realize that it's one contiguous piece you know it's just right and when you step I, out i feel like go ahead sorry no no no. i want to hear from you jt i say i feel like every just every room in general blows my mind going in and this one's like the kicker like i mean if you yeah your attention is drawn to like that pinky looking you know dinosaur background with their silhouettes but i mean even if you look up, you're like, oh my gosh, the ceiling is just, it's huge. Everything is just massive. It's just crazy to me. And th that you've had the experience mostly on the Ellen version. If you rode the original version with all of the effects when they were working, and I, I certainly saw it when they were all working. I mean, you walked in or, or rode in. And fog fills this room that was warm. I mean, they, they had the, the temperature in there to approximate a swampy forest. Uh, you'd get these swampy smells from the smellitizers that were a lot stronger back then than you get today. Uh, I, I heard that they they were completely turned off, too. That's just remnants of what you're smelling. Well, today, yeah. yeah. And then... You know, you, you move in first and they start your small. You can see the the brontosaurus bathing pool in the distance. But as you move in, the first things you see are oversized bugs and giant millipede. And uh, the, the biggest dinosaurs are these brontosaurus often off in the distance. And who obviously, as you move closer to them, get closer. Um, and then there's some duck-billed trachodons that are bathing in a pool of water. You know, uh, one of the then, things about that opening, they're like, do you guys remember how it would start to rain in yes. by the Brontosaurus pool at first? Storm. Yeah, That's there's right, like yeah, lightning yeah. in the background and like rain would come down. It was, and I think part of the thing was like that whole thing of like when the theater cars move up, it's like, that's pretty fast. But when they start to peel off and go off individually, it seems like that process takes forever. So 
I think that to me, when I when you first pull in there, I feel like you're getting there. I don't know if it's intentional, but I get this image of like everything's still and it looks like you're looking at like another screen mm. or a picture or something. And then movement starts. It's like a you know that build up that Disney yes. does. Well, and some some of the dinosaurs were also programmed to ignore the cars, and some of them were uh, were designed to actually kind of inspect the cars as they went by. There was a lot of interactivity that went into that to really give that effect. So, and and always talking about the show scene itself, and Disney didn't didn't just put what we would think a jungle would look like. They did like an absurd amount of research into plants and trees that would have existed then that don't exist anymore. And that's what's recreated in there as best they could based on research and fossils. And I mean, the level of detail, I mean, we wouldn't know the difference, but you know, I appreciate the difference. Yeah. Something else you're, all those things, all those plants, like those are the things that became the fossil fuel. It's like the dinosaurs are really just a sideshow. It's really the plants <laughs> and trees that should be the like main emphasis of those rooms. That's right. Well, right. And there's 250 of those prehistoric trees and they go up to 40 feet in the air. And that's yeah. in that show scene. It's insane. I mean, there's really is a great scene. And Todd was talking about the, the brontosaurus bathing pool. And the thing most people remember about it is as you get closest to it, there's the one brontosaurus up there eating the 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 fern or whatever is out of his mouth. It's still there today. Back then though, one of the brontosaurus actually moved through mm-hmm. the through the pool. Like it was walking with you as you Uh-oh. went there. I mean, it doesn't move today, they're stationary. But back then, one of the brontosaurus animatronics actually moved through the through the bathing pool, like, oh, wow. like to give you the. I mean, just, just imagine the, these were the largest animatronics that Disney ever did. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the dirty little secret is by the end of the '80s, a lot of the animatronics in Great Movie Ride, which was the next big animatronic thing they did, were made by a third party company, and you know, all of the animatronics now are. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, Disney was still doing all of its own animatronics in its own shop. So they built these things uh, in a shop on site and then transferred them into the building where they did some finishing work on them once they were inside and and were obviously still building the attraction. But there's a big hatch in the back of the building uh, where they we've got a couple pictures of them moving them in. But one of the stories that uh, that we talked about on Twitter uh, a couple of Sundays ago, four or five weeks ago, when the closure was announced, uh, when they when they did this, they obviously needed to get the dinosaurs from the shop where they were built into the attraction. That required them to use the existing roadways on Disney property, except that the brontosaurus, once it was on the back of the truck, was too tall to pass under the monorail beams that ran into Epcot. So they actually removed the monorail beam, the one one monorail beam, and so there's this picture of the monorail beam hoisted up on a crane on its side and the brontosaurus on the back of a flatbed truck being moved through the roads in into the Epcot uh, project. Uh, and that uh, actual picture was shared by an Imagineer named Dan Adams, uh, who did a lot of the he was trained by Leota Toombs and did a lot of the uh, painting of the animatronics. And so he shared some great stories over the years, especially about the dinosaurs, because he worked on a bunch of them. But so they move these dinosaurs in there. There's there's a total of 36 dinosaurs in the two show scenes that you move through. 
Uh, and they were, as I said, they were the largest that were ever built. Now, I have a memory and I want to see if I'm just making this up or if this is real. Does anyone remember? I know in the current version, people make a big deal because like one of the brontosauruses sneezes and it kind of gets, I guess, some it mist throws mist at you. Yeah, it's it's like a crude mist right now. Like when you roll by, because I just did it in January. Like it's it, it's just kind of noisy. It's like a you know, it's it's not very realistic. Okay. Let's say. I recall that the dinosaur that was chewing the grass or the tree or whatever that was yes. over the cars back then would actually drip water on people like underneath it. And I think I got hit by water at least once or twice. And I, would I remember, see other people. I remember that as well. I okay. wonder if that was just, if that was a con you know, a condensation buildup that just dripped off of hydraulic I, fuel. Leak. Yeah. Or hydraulic. <laughs> I guess it would just, Asbestos. I thought it would just breathe out of its nose or something like that. It's but it was, it was, dino DNA. <laughs> Cause they, they do hang over pretty far so i yeah. can see that if you were on that right side of your car how you would have got it yeah i seem i i've i've seen a lot of like discussion about the different effects and i don't see i've never seen anyone mention that so i didn't know if i was insane or just people again the benefit of having been there versus people trying to write about something that they didn't experience firsthand one of the other changes i think we've i've certainly noticed in watching the films and remembering going through it originally versus in the current version it was i I, th I feel like it was scarier in the original that the sounds were louder and a little more menacing the dinosaur growls and sounds and uh now that first bathing pool and that whole first scene tends to be more uh serene and then you move into what's a little bit I mean, I don't want to call it scary, but, you know, there's conflict between the dinosaurs. And then for a period of time, there was that Ellen animatronic that was in there. But we won't talk about that. No, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's where the that's where the volcano is, too. Right. The original had the volcano. Yeah. So I want to I want to touch on the scenes that you do see with the dinosaurs just so we can cover them all. Yeah. I talked about the bugs on the side, the millipede and the edifasaurus. Uh, that are on the side when you go in and then there's That's the, like the big iguana looking thing on the yes. tree right and then yes and then there's the brontosaurus and don't miss the giant snails there's a giant snail on the one side when you go in and there's a giant snail towards the exit uh, on the other side when you go out um, there's duck-billed trachodons that are they're bathing in the pool of water uh, and then there's a number of ornithomimus i think it is uh, and they are the ones that are watching as one of their brethren sinks into the boiling tar pit. <laughs> I don't know if that's still in this show now. I'd have to watch a video. Is that still in there? I think it's been more covered up by plants now because I seem okay. to recall that that tar pit, you could actually kind of see like the tar bubbling up and it was brown. And right. I think that's another one of those effects that have been kind of lost over time. So then, then you get to the point where you start looking overhead and there's the pterodons that are up there uh, with their wings and looking down on you like they might swoop down at any moment and steal one of the children from your ride vehicle. Uh, and then there's the fight of the two dinosaurs up on, over on, overhead on your right between I, a I stegus. think you skipped one section that oh, was what did particularly I skip? impressive. That very long snake-like... I I was going to mention that that's the that's the scene where they eventually inserted Ellen. 
Um, yes. Yeah, she's poking it. But yeah, so she's she's standing there with a pitchfork or whatever it is, trying to fight it off. But yeah, there was that that it was next to the uh, bubbling lava. Right. It was like uh, kind of in between the, there and the pteranodons, right? Yeah. So there was this lot on the left hand side. Yeah. Uh, as you're going through, and there was this first the lava pit and the flow of the lava coming. It was really bright red. It bubbled. Uh, you you felt heat. Um, and and then the next scene was this yeah it was like this giant snake uh with teeth and it's still there but yeah. it looks a little more cartoony now and it's in its current incarnation the one thing i do want to say about that snake scene though there is one effect there that was fantastic that it, that they've turned off that nobody remembers now um there was a huge like wave of water that would come crashing in just like outside of the um the living, living seas. seas pavilion yeah because um, oh, no that way. thing was supposed to be a tidal pool and this huge wave would come crashing in and like push water on it was and that thing coming out it was it was really cool it was um nice. it was a little scary but yeah yeah i want to talk about the lava because yeah i remember seeing that in the in the all the books and then yeah. i never really saw it when i was on the ride Th- that was for some e- exactly so so it seems like such a letdown this whole attraction for you well, how everything was not what you expected no but I, I i'm with him on this so here, here's here's a memory of mine i remember when epcot opened and there was newspaper articles and television i re- remember distinctly talking to one of our neighbors and she was she was an adult i was you know it was what um I was eight at the time, and I remember talking to me and saying, "Did you see Epcot on TV?" I said, "Yeah, it looks great. I can't wait to go." She, "Did you read this and that?" And I remember talking about the lava at Universal Energy, and she had read in an article that they had this. This gets me. They had reused a pump from a dog food factory in order to pump the lava because of the viscosity. And, you know, and, and reading this article is just amazing because, like, look at this, this this technology. We're doing these things. And I could not wait to go see the lava. And I missed it. You, you, I never seem to ever see it. See, how's how's going to say the same thing? Yeah, um, same exact thing. There's a picture. You missed it like it was going and you just didn't catch it? or Well, was it's it like you never knew or... where to look. But if you look at the, the footage that Martin has on his, his, you know, his complete tribute, it seems to be stock video footage that Disney may have filmed um ahead of the attraction opening and in the lava is ex- exploding and spewing and it looks thick and gelatinous and like like real lava right there's yeah, there's like a, a picture yeah there's a picture in the in the uh, Walt Disney's Epcot Center book yeah. of this technician like with his sticking his hand into the lava and i remember reading there was a thing in one of the books where they talked about the fact that they wanted to make sure that whatever it was stayed at room temperature. So even though it looked really hot, like if someone happened to go and touch it, like they wouldn't get burned. Yep. Like, I, I don't know if at some point it was going like, why don't we just use real lava? There we yeah. go. <laughs> there's, there's the photo there. We'll but have yeah, to, there, we'll was, have to there was something about how they used like phosphorescent materials in it. So that way yep. it really looked like it was glowing. They, they went through all this effort. And I swear to God, I, I kept looking for that. And I never saw it the way that it was depicted in any of the books. All right. So my ask of, 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 the, of the community out there is if you know anything about this dog food pump <laughs> that was apparently repurposed <laughs> to move the, the artificial lava. Please let me know. I want to read that. I should go through some of the old articles from central New Jersey at the time and see if I can find something. Cause that's, that's where I believe she, she read it. So the dog food pump. That's right. So while you're passing that on your right up, 
ahead is this fight between two dinosaurs. And most people assume that it is a Tyrannosaurus Rex fighting with a Stegosaurus. Uh, because that's what it looks like. But it doesn't quite look like a T-Rex, and there's a reason for that. So in the Fantasia movie, and in Disneyland, and in the World's Fair, uh, there is a scene of a Stegosaurus fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex. By the time they got around to doing Epcot, and there was a focus on accuracy, both scientifically and historically... Uh, it was brought to their attention that those two particular dinosaurs did not coexist. They existed at different times, uh, but did not coexist at the same time in history. So it would not have been possible for a Stegosaurus to have fought with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So in the Epcot version, they have changed that to an Allosaurus. And that is the dinosaur that is fighting the Stegosaurus uh, as you are heading into the final piece of the of the dinosaur uh, show scene, but you just mentioned the um, the the colors of the dinosaurs after the refurbishment in 1996, and that again was a, a you know part of continuing research on dinosaurs. And if you remember, that refurb was done a few years after Jurassic Park came out, and the theory became that. There was a more of a focus on these dinosaurs being descendants of birds uh, and a belief that instead of having kind of gray and green skin, that they were more brightly colored and and uh, almost fluorescent in some cases. And so that was reflected in some of the redos of the dinosaurs that you see today. Uh, when they did the refurb, they repainted them to put spots and stripes and patterns on them and and bright colors. And it always it looks, looks so little... weird to me now. <laughs> it does. It, and... it doesn't look right, if you ask me. I mean, and that's well, just, well, I think, a function of us growing up with plain colored dinosaurs. Well, yeah, and and let's be honest. Gray. Let's be honest. Green. None of us know what a friggin' dinosaur looks like. So just give us the gray and green ones that we're used to seeing. I don't need <laughs> Joseph and the Technicolor dinosaur. You know, it's... <laughs> When I was in, uh, just out of college, it's like one of, I was working one of my first jobs and as a gag, it's like one of the, the art director at the, at the place, like gave us all these little plastic dinosaurs and you push a button, it would go roar and make this sound. And one of the, like one of the explosion things on it, uh, that was like a selling feature said realistic dinosaur sounds. And I'm like, how do you know? Yeah. <laughs> how does anybody know <laughs> there was actually research done by disney at the time for what you know they thought and again based on all this fossil research and what they think that dinosaurs might have sounded like so there's an attempted accuracy but right you don't know uh so before we roll into the final theater um and out of this scene and it, as i said it's a it's a seven minute roll through all told uh, I have a request from the populace out here because I loved dinosaurs from about kindergarten on because we had a whole segment where they taught us about dinosaurs in kindergarten. And with it was another one of those 33 and a third records where each dinosaur that they, and every week we like learned about a new dinosaur, 
well, every one of them had a song. So if any of you grew up in a elementary school where they had the letter people, where each week they taught you a different letter and they all had, there were these inflatable letter people and each of them had a different song. There's Mr. L and Mr. M and Miss A and Miss A Attitude and Mr. M had a munching mouth. And I know there's like people out there saying, oh my God, yeah, we had the letter people. Well, they did the same <laughs> thing in kindergarten for us with dinosaurs. And when we got to the Tyrannosaurus Rex one, which of course until the last 10 years everybody thought was like the meanest baddest dinosaur that ever lived and now they just keep finding new ones that were like way better than the tyrannosaurus rex uh but it had a song and that they had a song for each one i still remember to this day the tyrannosaurus rex song which i'm going to sing for you because i'm trying to find a listener who remembers this and had it in their school or has a copy of it or it's finds it for me on youtube because believe me i've looked and it was tyrannosaurus rex was a real mean king if it wasn't for him we would have a happy ending and then there was like this giant bass drum that went boom 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 somebody was in kindergarten with their micro cassette recorder yeah. just getting it and so if you remember that that's my request from the universe of energy dinosaur it doesn't have anything to do with it except it has as much to do with dinosaurs as dinosaurs do with the universe of energy that is true so who's taking us into the next theater so after you've passed lava and a crazy snake dinosaur and a dinosaur fight in the parking lot uh and then the last giant snail uh, you've seen enough dinosaurs. And also they were running out of building to move you through because That's really right. this diorama takes up the whole rear of the building. So when you look at yep. the building and how it curves up, uh, you know, the, that giant show scene is really the back of the building. So you're about to hit the wall and you're either going to blast through and be somewhere between Spaceship Earth and the energy exchange or they need <laughs> to make a left-hand turn. So you make a left-hand turn into Theater right. 2. Before we move on from this segment, I want to thank Jim Corcus and the All Ears newsletter for an article that he recently wrote on the dinosaurs in the universe of energy just as we were getting ready to do this show. So instead of having to go and assemble my notes all in 12 different places, Jim happily provided an outline uh, that we borrowed heavily from and I wanted to acknowledge him before we move on. Before we get into Theater 2, which we are going to raise another wall or lower another wall so that we can get in there. Um, the big thing about these vehicles, too, was was the, the the fact that they ran autonomously. There was no track. So I want to give you guys a little information on, on how that all happened. Now, there was a wire that was embedded in the concrete. Um, it was only an eighth. You know, you'll hear all the time. It's only an eighth of an inch thick. You know, people are like, wow, it's amazing. The interesting way that the way that, how this worked is that that really wasn't a wire in the sense that you think something's tracking it. Um, the wire was actually an antenna for giving off radio frequency. And what would happen is the vehicle would be able to sense on the left and the right of that wire um, how strong the signal was. So if the sensor on the right-hand side of the vehicle got too close to the wire, the signal would become stronger and it would know to turn a little to the right and same thing for the left. So what the system was doing was, you know, basically tuning itself to the radio frequency and making sure that both the left and the right receivers, if you will, were even. And if one got off, it just went the other way and kept itself balanced. Now, what's really interesting is that all these cars had to talk back and they talk 60 times a second 
um, back to the main computer telling, um, you know, the, its function. But what they couldn't tell the main computer is where it was any, in any place in the location in the attraction. Uh, so what would happen is that uh, at certain locations, the main computer would know from location A to location B how long it should take the cars to get there. And when the cars got to that spot, there was basically a trigger on the floor that would tell it to say, hey, I'm here. And the computer would look at, at when it left area A and when it arrived at B. And if the time was within the tolerance, it allowed the ride to continue. If for some reason it never made it, it would issue a complete e-stop, an emergency stop. Um, and basically that was quite a process. Uh, apparently... Most of the time, they would do a full evacuation. Um, sometimes cast members would jump on the back of the of the vehicles, and there was a manual uh, drive system, and they would have to... This, this kills me. The only way to reset the entire ride was to move all vehicles back to their home position, meaning all 12 vehicles had to be on one of the turntables uh, in the six-pack configuration. Uh, which which is crazy. So you can imagine you got to get all these cast members in, or or just the time to reset was 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 really was really nuts. Um, sometimes sounds like the Truman Show. <laughs> Back to home position, everybody. That's right, get to the home position. Or starting position. So sometime in um, when Ellen came in um, around 2000, or so the original Guidewire system was abandoned. And, um, you know, it does the same thing, but there's this new advanced technology where there's these pucks or some, some sort of infrared or things that are spread around the, around the pathway. And it's a little more, um, you know, a little more, uh, technologically forward. Um, but really think about that guys, this is, you know, 1979, 1980, they're, they're designing and coming up with this stuff. And this is probably some other, well, as we talked about, it was a borrowed, um, it was borrowed technology from warehouses. So, um, Really, just just amazing how they how they were able to do that. So the door opens up. We are now remember we're single file, and now we're going to go back to a regular um, six pack configuration. Now we talked earlier about that they could run these um, and six packs was the standard running, but they could run them in five pack configurations, where the um, center rear uh, uh, theater car was not in there. But apparently the system could not run with two five packs. It's very, very strange the way it was built. But anyway. It's out there, everywhere. Much of the time pouring down on us like an endless rain. So we come into theater two. Um, now there's not much in there, but when back back in the original show when you arrived in, um, you would see these consoles and television screens and, and these maps with lines like Tron or or even like a nuclear attack. <laughs> right? <laughs> there are these yeah. lines like, like war going, games. That's, yeah, war yeah, games. It's like your it's like your NORAD. Yeah, exactly. These lines going across the maps like to cities and, and it was really weird. Um but you were in what they call the energy information center. And apparently these these consoles and TV screens were supposed to be uh monitoring the current and future energy resources around the world. It's um, really funny if you look at the concept art for this. Yeah. It looks like you know the screens are in the front. 
It does. It looks like uh, like a like a, a NORAD war game. Yeah, thing yeah. <laughs> where where the computer consoles are literally like wrapped around like one half of the circular theater. Yeah. And then when they actually built it, it was just yep. like this tiny little pod <laughs> like exactly. in front of the one screen. Not nearly as impressive, but and for some reason, I vaguely remember a cast member or somebody sitting behind like a glass wall or something like that. Do you, do yes, you remember there, that the, there, there was a yes, cast member in there, There right? was a cast member there. And, and one of the things that we discovered in our research is uh, not everything in, in this, uh, in this, in the show was actually automated. It's like the cast member was pushing the button to like start and stop the turntable and raise and lower the, uh, these walls. And there's actually like bits in, in their script that says like, Oh, when the person says this, push the button to like start the turntable and when the butterfly transforms into this thing it's like push the button to like lower the the uh the wall between the two the between the two rooms so it's it's really fascinating yeah that's really amazing how how sophisticated yet how primitive yeah so we we come in here um this is the theater too so obviously we're going to see a film this is a um additional uh 12 and a half minute film it was created under the direction of of david moore and there are three massive 70 millimeter screens. Uh, again, we, we can't stress this enough. Everything in this pavilion was huge from, from you know, the original pre-show to the, the first theater. Now we're, you were the, dino, the dinosaur backdrop was 500 feet long. These screens are 210 by 30 feet high. So I'll, pref- I'll preface this scene by saying you may have been bored, but you were bored big. <laughs> you were bored big. That's right, because... With this 218-degree field of vision that was created, you're going to be placed right in the middle of the action, and we are going to go through all the parts of energy that we learned about in the pre-show. So, a little bit about how they made the film. They had some of these uh, three different 70-millimeter cameras. They were synchronized with each other. Um, they had special mounting rigs and all these different special mirrors and, and, and to create a seamless image. Um, and it, it's interesting. It was the only camera that was ever capable of shooting a continuous curve about 120 degrees. Um, so we go into this, this film starts, we learned where fossil fuels originated, um, according to the script back then. And we were now prepared to see how all the different energy sources will meet our growing energy demands of the future. It starts and opens with the middle of a field of solar mirrors in a California desert. So back in the beginning of the show, we talked about the bright source uh, power plant, and that's what this is. This was an early, the early incarnation of, of the uh, bright source power plant. So they talk about that. They go through oil extraction, um, discovering the new fields. They take you through the Mideast, uh, waters of the North Sea, up in Alaska. And they're really doing a great job with this. I mean, they're putting the camera underwater. They're they're flying it around. The coal is really neat. They put you on a, um, they put the camera on a a coal train, you know, a, 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 that goes through the um, through the veins, and, and and you can you ride that. Um, and they 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 also talked about other additional uh, essential fossil fuels, specifically, the one that rocks, right, Hal? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we're just gonna let. The narrator tells about one specific fossil fuel. Oil shale, the rock that burns. That was that was the super dramatic. That's the one quote I think that everybody takes. Everybody out of, knows out about of that oil shale. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's just it. it yeah, it was kind of kind of cheesy, but and ironically, it's like at the time it seemed like well that's ridiculous, but like now we have fr- hydraulic fracking and it's it's right. actually a very 
a very pertinent, like timely energy source that we all use today. Exactly. We can we can get that stuff. Did they rehash any of this footage you're talking about on the current version? Because I remember like them that solar field in the desert. Uh, yeah, I, I feel I like it looks similar. I don't know if they ever. I'd have to go compare the films one to you know one one and. Yeah. I, I mean, they may have reused some segments from it. I mean, it was you know some of that footage is, it it, it it's never going to go old. It's it's, you know, it, there's there's really no date that you can put on some of the stuff. Like like a lot of the Epcot films, like Symbiosis that we've talked about before, this thing was gorgeously shot. I mean, yeah. every every frame is a work of art. You know, individually, um, it is it uh, it is just beautiful. I'll make another. Jurassic Park reference because in that John Hammond repeatedly says that he spared no expense <laughs> and th- and this is one of those attractions in Epcot where they really spared no expense I mean yeah. everything was done almost unnecessarily well and we should mention too this was what the first attraction com- completely finished even in the early construction photos this this building is way far along yeah so we should I mean obviously spaceship earth had to be had to be the the shell needed to be constructed fairly quickly when they when they began vertical construction, but yeah, whenever you look at the pavilions, energy and the world of motion were the two that were kind of settled and under construction right away, along with Spaceship Earth and Future World. Uh, so you, you literally look at it some because if you remember when we did the the episode on the land, it had changed both sponsors and focus, so they were a little later getting started on that although it was one of the ones that was completely finished and open on opening day um and so when it's funny when you look at some of these things where epcot is just a complete you know dirt pad of of frozen tundra (laughs) that they're working on in the in in you know in the florida swamps uh you see the world of motion the almost complete uh, universe of energy building and spaceship earth obviously mostly done without the without the exterior cover on it but yeah it's very very early yeah the, yep. bu- the building was done yep so we go on through uh synthetic fuels geothermal hydroelectric power modern energy production and they talk about nuclear energy with the possibility of, of, of fusion and stuff um they did make a prediction i can't remember if it was in the film or if it was in the the pre-show or somewhere else but they predicted 25 percent of our energy would be uh, nuclear within two decades. Um, the I did look up the actual it was eleven percent in two thousand fourteen, I believe. So not too bad. But um, and then it actually brings that right back home again. You're in the universe of energy, and they specifically talk about the photovoltaic cells on the uh, on the roof and how that your attraction today you've been riding on sunshine through the universe of energy which is the second most memorable line (laughs) so the film concludes with a fantastic uh space shuttle launch scene This is one of the very early space shuttle launches when they were still painting the um, the external booster white. So we know it was, uh, I think they only did that for two, three launches. So it's one of the very early ones. Um, yeah, I think they might have filmed the first launch. I'm, I'm trying to remember the details. Was it was it the first of Columbia? So, if, and my, my, my recollection too is I'm reading this, that NASA loved the footage they wanted that they had never seen such a spectacular, you know, panoramic shot. 
Now, what's interesting here is you, you've you've rotated. Uh, I, I believe you rotate bef- while the, the, the towards the end of this film, um, as the as the shuttle launch completes and is lifted off to the sky, the entire screens actually lift up about ten feet. Another door has opened, other curtains have risen, and the entire uh, six pack moves forward. And um, again, you're on a turntable that did all of its business that we talked about earlier. And you're going to move back into Theater 1 where you started the attraction um, some 20 or 40 minutes ago. All right, and so as we proceed in, into uh, Theater One, um, uh, Universe of Energy s- song is played, which was written by Al Kasha and uh, Joel Hirshhorn. And as we come into Theater One, where we, as we said, we, you began your journey, um, there's a, a mix of computer animated and wireframe and really abstract, but exciting and very moving type of image that is very projected in a very interesting way. Only about, what would you say how, about 45 degrees, maybe seven degrees total of, of the theater actually has screens. And then surrounding the right and left all the way through behind you are these mirrors. They're not perfectly round. They're kind of little funhouse-like, almost a little squiggly, if you will. Yeah, they're probably they're probably like made out of plastic rather than, than uh, glass. Yeah. I assume because we've seen those like sort of plastic-backed uh, mirrors. Right. Um, but yeah. And this just gives this the reflection of these two mirrored walls against each other. And remember, you're not, you're kind of theater one is wedge shaped. Um, it gives you this idea of you're actually inside of a, a full circle, like you're inside of a donut. Um, and there's also a half cylindrical apex screen at the very front, which projects a completely different image. And I don't know how to really describe the closing scene because it's 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 abstract. There's a lot of fluidity and movement to it and, and you know, wireframe animations and baseball players. The bat becomes a telescope and there's just a random person walking with a stick. There's a lot of morph, like all, everything goes through this like uh, morphing cycle. The character yeah. is, as they're singing about these different things, it's like you see the, like the, I think the, uh, the, that thing that you mentioned is like when they talk about being future bowed and then like the baseball bat transforms into the, the telescope, telescope and the guy yeah. is looking for it. So the, the, uh, this animation is constantly flowing and morphing from one shape to another. And it's basically sort of depicting what the, the song is singing about. Yeah. Hey, can we talk about the, who, uh, Al Kosh and Joel Hirshhorn are and why in the heck these two random people, seemingly random people wrote this song? Yeah. And just one, one note before you get to that. Sure. The, sure. sure. Go. The film According to Walt Disney's Epcot, which you referenced earlier, how uh, it was the largest computer animated film ever projected. Now, by largest, I don't know if they mean time, <laughs> height, largest, physical like film. It's very abstract. Right, things, right. Yeah. So, but it was indeed, uh, parts of it I thought were hand animated, but it was indeed all computer controlled or, or computer generated. So, one of the earlier, I don't know if you'll call it a motion picture, being that it was only about four minutes, um, but uh, it, Kind of, kind of interesting nonetheless. But tell us a little bit about the music. Yeah. Um, so when, when I first 
was going through our research here and I, I saw these names. I'm like, who the heck are these people? Because we know that Bob Moline wrote a lot of songs. It's like we know about the Sherman Brothers, but like who in the heck are these two random people? So so what the first thing I discovered is that they wrote the song The Morning After, uh, the Academy Award winning song The Morning After from the Poseidon Adventure. And they also wrote another song for the Towering Inferno that that was also, uh, I think, what an so Academy Award. So you're picking up the disaster movie theme here. Right? Yeah. I'm like, this pavilion's going to be a, a disaster. Who can write a song for this? <laughs> but that, what the, the actual Disney connection turned out to be is they actually did work for Disney uh, in the the mid uh, 70s and so they wrote the song i'd like to be you for like you for a day for freaky friday and they actually wrote all the songs for pete's dragon in 1977 so another five years rolls by and they're looking for songwriters they're like oh well these guys wrote the stuff for pete's dragon that's good enough for us let's let's go talk to them so that's that's how they got there uh and the song was sung by john joyce who was an la session singer uh, he'd been singing professionally since he was like 13 years old. Uh, he sang backup vocals for Elton John on tour. He's actually on Pink Floyd's The Wall album on the song Goodbye Blue Sky, uh, where he sings backup with Tony Tennille from The Captain and Tennille. <laughs> Captain and Tennille, yeah. <laughs> um, but he's on he's on Frank Sinatra albums, Billy Joe albums, Jackson Brown albums. He's He was one of the foremost like, session singers uh, in L.A. for decades. Uh, and I think he's he's still maybe around and, and active, I think. so. Um, but one of the things, Todd, that it, we wanted to talk about the mirror thing. Yeah. Uh, all those draperies that we talked about, the curtains, when you walked into the theater at the beginning, mm-hmm. like all of that rises right. and gets out of the way. So now when you come into this room, you actually don't even know that that was the same theater that you started out in. It's, and for, it looks completely uh, different because right. of the mirrors. As a kid, I could not figure out for the life of me the layout of this building. You know, it really took some blueprints and, and, and the, the the mystery of having those, you know, gaudy silver curtains gone uh, and just completely gone out of there and the, the walls did their work, any other black curtains did their work and it real you really didn't know that you were back from where you started. It is such a funny concept to say like oh what can we do to like sort of amp up the show at the end because we're really in the same room that we started out with and so it was just like just throw beers everywhere <laughs> but it worked but it, but it works yeah it was really impressive I can't recall how quickly after you started exiting the vehicles and the movie was done, whether or not you saw the curtains come down. You you might have. Um, I, I think towards the end they they, they did. I can't remember. I I think when you exit, it was mostly up. And yeah. there is a um there's a song on YouTube that's supposed to be the exit music. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's about I think six minutes long in total. And the first three minutes is uh is the universe like a really neat arrangement of the universe of energy, and then about halfway through. It switches to uh, energy. You make the world go around. Mm-hmm. So I presume that three minutes would have been the time that you unloaded. And uh, then once yes. the cars were fully unloaded, 
and the doors, those doors to the outside would close and then the load doors would open up and the people would come in. Right. It's like, then you got the music the from the previous show to like take you into that room. So energy, you make the world go round. Brian had his plea to, to, to people for his dinosaur song. I'm going to throw out my plea. We already talked about it internally, but we're, we're going to let the fans here and the followers and everybody take a listen. Cause I know you, what you guys think. So I have, I, I think the lyrics have been changed. I think it was recorded twice and energy you make the world go round. Let's hear the acoustic demo version of of that song. Bringing our lives new graces. What did you guys hear him say? Bringing our lives new graces. Graces. Okay, I I agree. I agree. He says graces. Now let's hear the version from the attraction. Bringing our lives new graces. Okay, I hear something different. You guys still hear? Graces. All right, I hear braces. I hear braces, and my my brother heard braces because he used to make fun of me every time in the interaction. He'd whip his head over and go, you're wearing braces, dude. I'm going to I'm gonna look through the sheet music here because I have the... The sheet music says graces, but I swear he says braces, and every... I'm going to call John Joyce up. We're going to call John Joyce and say, what did you sing? Our listeners... That's right, what did you sing? So... Because is, is the de- the demo's Moline, right? Yes, is yes. The, de- the demo's Moline singing it. I, I want to know what our listeners think and what have they thought all these years. Was it is it Graces or Braces? And I want to know. So write us in at podcast at retrowdw.com. Title it Graces or Braces, and we'll see what what the rest of you think. But, Why would energy bring our life new braces? Well, because it's bracing it's... society. Why would it bring it Graces? <laughs> oh man well as we exit we are offered um an additional look at energy uh that that would take us over to the energy exchange which we are going to talk about another episode which is over in in communicore east uh and there's another interesting tidbit as you came out of the building i don't know if you guys know this do, do you remember the trees next to the building between spaceship earth and universe of energy I, I remember they were like topiaried. They were topiaried. Like, sort of right, cone right. shaped, right? Well, they, they were they were sculpted flat. They kind of had these uh, uh, haircuts, if you will, that, to match the rise and pitch of of the side of the building, and they were right next. To it. So this is kind of interesting. That they, they were. Uh, I'm reading this from Birnbaum. Uh, they're pruned to follow the slanted roofline of the pavilion, and these trees were among a handful started from acorns from the Hotel Plaza Boulevard. Um, that's the street that runs down the center of. Hotel Plaza. Imagine that. That's over near Lake Buena Vista. Um, for Walt Disney World's opening over a decade prior, uh, a quartet of their siblings in an unpruned state can still be seen in front of the American Adventure in World Showcase. Now, this was 1986. I don't know if they're all still there anymore, but just kind of interesting fact that they took the trees from the boulevard, and that's where their offspring are located. Hmm. I think those all got replaced by palm trees at some point. Did they? Yeah, I don't I know if recall, they were. Yeah. So the, the, the topiaries were pretty neat how they, they followed the, uh, the contours. So we hope you have enjoyed your journey uh, through the universe of energy and uh, appreciate you coming on for the ride this evening. All right. As always, we always have uh, new merchandise and new designs coming out and teas have, are our big thing recently. And um, how we, we were ahead this month, we created a shirt just for the universe of energy. Why don't you tell the folks what we've, what we've got? Cause this is, it's a brilliant one. 
Yeah, we were <clears throat> we were going back and forth. I, I had wanted to do an oil shale, the rock that burns t-shirt for quite some time. And I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around how to do that. And so Todd and I were talking one day and uh, all of a sudden he he kind of reminded me of um, I don't know. We started talking about concert t-shirts or something. Uh, and it occurred to me that uh, that uh, oil shale could be you could kind of treat it like an ACDC shirt. Uh, and so that's what we did. So we made sort of like a concert tee, uh, in the style of, of ACDC that says oil shale up at the top. And then, uh, the rock that burns and that times room and typeface underneath it with like a nice big picture of oil shale on fire right in the middle. Uh, <laughs> and it's the future world tour, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. The, the <laughs> 1982 future, future world tour. Future world tour. So that's a, that's a, that's a great shirt. So you can definitely get that. Um, so as always, we've got all the different tees. We have another one added in for our event, which we'll talk about. Our event is called looking back at tomorrow. So there's some great shirts that how designed for that. Um, you got another one in the mix coming up soon. How you think, or, uh, I think, you know, energy is endless and yeah. untapped. So certainly there's, there's more, more there's that poten- one came from. so you have potential energy. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> You'll bring those into the mix. So as always, you can you can check out our merchandise at retrowdw.com forward slash support us. All right, so let's talk about, uh, we're going to make a real quick mention of our event here. Um, Brian, you and I did a quick episode, 31.5, uh, 31.35, uh, that we uh, released a couple weeks ago um, that went into some of the details of um, of our event that we're hosting um, at uh at Epcot and uh, specifically we have announced that it's at the Living Seas Pavilion and um, tickets went fast yeah let's let's thank everybody we sold a hundred tickets the first hour we sold the allotment that we had within the first week uh, so it's officially sold out with a with a waiting list there for to try to slip a few more folks in once we work out capacity issues but uh you guys that the the first when jt and i told this story on another podcast yesterday so uh, i think we can share it with everybody we had originally reserved the norway loft uh, which is a small facility because we you know we never know how how many of you there are out there that would want to come and have some birthday cake on in behalf of epcot center with us uh but that ticket sales you guys moved us out of the Norway loft in the first hour. Yeah. We, over to the... <laughs> didn't take long. No, it didn't take We had long, to scramble so. to do some more paperwork to get <laughs> to And, really and the truth of it is if Epcot had a bigger facility for us, we'd be in a bigger facility than even the Living yeah. Seas, but yeah. that's all they have. Uh, yeah, the so. time the timing right now with the Odyssey probably would have been our first choice and probably would have held more than more than the, the seas and and that's tied up with the with food and wine a lot of things are tied up with food and wine as as a result um so the the event um you, you can see all the details at retro wdw.com forward slash epcot 35 um and um but we're welcoming um disney legend tom nabby is going to be joining us um we have an autograph session with him everybody's going to be receiving a signed photo from tom um as well as one of his disney legend uh window pins Wait, special and and we have a schedule and merchandise right actually published like months before the event yeah we're, how we're do ahead we do of that? it's impossible the, how, can, how could anybody no. possibly big deal how can four guys possibly <laughs> <It's> crazy <do> <laughs> that? we're selling merchandise we got everything going um we do have a character greeting scheduled it's a a, a rare uh, epcot character and um 
uh, will be will be really interesting and it should be great to have uh, the character there with us uh, we're going to have presentations of never before seen private films of Epcot Center and another film that has not been in circulation since 1983 we'll have some different memorabilia and artifacts um, we got some uh, light refreshments and snacks one of the big things I know one person said that's why we're coming you had me at the cake so we are going to have an edible recreation of one of Epcot's historic birthday cakes. And I can assure you it is not going to be a replica of the cake that was in the Living Seas made out of tuna and coral. So <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to be bringing that one mm. up. Um, and then we have, as, as Brian has coined it, the coolest retro Epcot gift on the planet we will be given out to ex- exclusive <laughs> to all the attendees of this event and let me just tell you i've been working so so exclusive that todd or that how and jt don't know what it is and we're we're not telling them yeah i'm i can't i hope i get one that's really the only wish we'll have a private buy a a ticket buddy (laughs) (laughs) uh so it has been kept under very very tight wraps um it is going to be a really really unique gift we've been working on it uh, in fact, when I'm done recording this here, I've, I've got to get some some work done on it as well. But it's going to be uh, nothing short of awesome. I, so. I think we can tell them, though, we had to get Disney's permission That's to right. make it. Yeah, we got and, and we asked and they actually said, yeah, you can do that. Huh. So if you weren't one of those to get tickets, we do have a wait list, as Brian pointed out. Um, you can email your name, the total number of, in your party to podcast at retrowdw.com. Just ask to be put on the wait list. Um, we do not know if we're going to be able to release any additional um, tickets. Uh, we, we know what our top maximum number is for the venue. We know where we're at now. We've got a couple of other things to plan and, and figure out if we can um, a few weeks before the event. Uh, we'll release those, uh, but keep following us and, um, you know, I ho- hope we can get, uh, you know, anybody that's on the wait list in. I don't, I think there might be more than spots available, but who knows? Yeah. We'll, we'll figure it but, out. But for those of you who are going to be on property that weekend, uh, we had talked about doing some kind of free walking tour or meetup. Uh, now that we've seen the rough schedule for D23's event on Sunday, October 1st, the actual anniversary, uh, you know, we will be there. There will be some kind of a meetup uh, between when that event ends at 2.30 in the afternoon and when our nighttime obligations begin. So sometime uh, mid to late afternoon, there will be some kind of a, a get together uh, with all of us somewhere right. in, in future world. And we, uh, we so. did decide today too. we are going to make we had the corrugated wall album cover that we made last at the last get together of the four of us uh we do have a location and we are going to be making a new uh album cover specifically for this event so you can keep your eyes peeled after you know early october you'll you'll see that come out so we're looking forward to that well it'll be on it'll be on our walking tour meetup for sure so absolutely, absolutely. people might actually we won't, get we to won't see let us them take know. the picture people might actually yeah. get to see us take the picture <laughs> so but uh, we'll get that out. So again, thank you to everybody who purchased the tickets. We really appreciate it. We're, uh, you know, humbled by the, the the response, and and we're, you know, a lot of people. Hopefully, you just all want to come see us. Maybe I don't know, but uh. and we're really looking forward to meeting all of you. I Absolutely. mean, some of you we've probably met at other things, but like I'm, I'm. I'm fascinated to see who would actually want to listen to us go on for an hour and a half <laughs> on a on a monthly basis, and we'll, 
well, so thankful that you do that. And we're really lo- looking forward to meeting you in person. Absolutely. And what's really nice about this is because part of the, the time and we, we will publish more of a, a timely schedule as we get close to what the full two hours are going to entail. Um, but there will be some time for, for just, you know, mingling and, and, and saying hello to you. We didn't really have that experience when we did the Lake and Lagoon tour. Um, and if we, it was kind of, it was, it was a little rushed. Get on the pontoon boat now. Uh, we're taking on water, everybody to the back. Uh, if we'd ever did that again, I think now, uh, Brian and I have been working very closely with Disney event planning. They've been awesome to work with. It's, it's taken us a little time, but they've been really good in, in working with us. We have another call scheduled next week uh, to, to go over some of the catering details. Um, but I think now they know who we are. We know who they are. And I think if we ever did the Lake and Lagoon tour, we could probably work with them to get something bigger where we can all be together too. So, all right, guys. Well, that takes us to the end of this episode. We do need to figure out where we are going next month. Um, we had a couple options on the table. I know, you know, we, we talked about we bumped journey into imagination because of universe of energy so do we want to stay true and and continue with uh journey do we want to go to our next spot stop which was going to be retro food um do we want to get out of epcot for a little bit what do we what do we think yeah um, i mean i'm a little hungry i don't know about you guys but all right it's, i I'm, right. i've eternally can eat you know <laughs> well why don't we do that then let's take a trip down a, a food lane next month we will uh i will dig out the flagler menu i know brian you've you've got a, a certain dine-in menu and a couple and, others that you've been and i think that this is the point where we can make an initial call for those of you who've hung with us through this entire episode and are still listening uh, since we'll be focusing on uh, menus of the past and and so maybe some restaurants of the past and things like that, if you happen to have uh, a menu from a Walt Disney World property restaurant uh, from the 70s, 80s, or we'll say 90s, I think we'll cut it off at the at the the millennium. But uh, if you've got one and you can scan it in and send it to us, one of the things that we're building and as we get into this episode is an archive. Uh, to share on our website of some of these menus. And I've certainly been collecting them uh, online and buying them and scanning them and so that we can preserve some of them. Uh, so if you happen to uh, have one and can email it over to us or tell us what you've got and see if we're interested in it, uh, we would love to, to have it. We really want to get a, a full page. And Todd, we can't end this episode without thanking all of the people who sent us pictures of themselves that's right. in the uh, at the photo opportunity on the train platform and in downtown Disney. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that? That's that, that's right. So a couple a couple episodes ago, I think I'm trying to think about where this was when this was. What we we had talked about the the photo op that used to be in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, it was in uh, the photo center, which is now where the confectionery is on the right hand side, just as you you're starting to go down Main Street. Um, that was the Kodak Photo Center. And in the back, they had a mock-up of the very end of a Walt Disney World railroad car. And you would uh, dress up in period garb from the turn of the century, and they would take your photo there. And we had talked about it, and we 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 weren't getting any response. But for some reason, all of a sudden, somebody sent us one photo. We tweeted it out. And before you knew it, we had a flood of pictures coming in from from, from this this photo op. Um, in fact, we even received from, from other photo areas, uh, in the magic, you know, 
in Walt Disney World that they had over time. So we have assembled them all together. Um, if you go to our website and go into the pictorial souvenir inside Magic Kingdom, you're going to see a link for the camera center. And if you go in there, and we'll post a link on, on the show notes as well, um, you've got a bunch of, of family photos um, all taken uh, with, the, with the rear of the train from the camera center. And what's really interesting is, is you'll see the repeat of the of the outfits um, from one person to another like in, in one photo the two parents are wearing the same exact thing that my parents are wearing so you'll you'll see mine the mccartney <laughs> family from new jersey and um my mine's pretty funny actually I, I got a great tweet back from somebody and they said you look like the kids from back to the future you, you look like jules and Vern when when uh <laughs> when doc comes in when doc comes back so take a look at that one and and uh and tell me what you think but super you know thank you to everybody we've got the sweetos the veteranos murray's moore's graves gorillas bigs buck yeah and on the train family. thank you all so much for sending those in and a few of them started sending ones in from the pirate photo as well that was done in pirates of the caribbean and we also started to get some. oh yeah, yeah remember that one yeah so, yeah so we're gonna put a feeler out for that one so if you've got it send it to us and the other the one that we also have that there's not as many as these this was over in uh, at the marketplace um and it was a turn of the century type photo as well but it was just basically with wallpaper behind you but those are those are out there and i, I found mine as well so We'll get those uh, scanned in as they come in. So if you've got them, send them in to podcast at retrowdw.com. All right, guys, with that, I think it's time to close out this month. Um, I'm out of energy. It's getting late. So So a big thank you, as always, to our listeners. We appreciate everything you send in, all your photos and stories and, and emails and tweets and clips and quotes. Um, just tonight, we saw somebody else had made their way to the corrugated wall. So congratulations. Uh, we might need to get like a pin. I found the wall. I found the corrugated wall and handed out when people. What do you think, guys? Should we do something like that? Yeah. I, th- making a corrugated wall pin would be like the fastest probably design job that I ever did. You, you is, got, you got 30 just, minutes. Get it to me. I want to. Yeah, <laughs> it's just some lines and bronze. <laughs> exactly. or, you know, that, that like beige color. With, no, no. Yeah. I want it just made that, out of the corrugated I, material. <laughs> there we go. Which just at the bottom, I found it corrugated wall. Yeah. So, all right. Who knows? Maybe we'll kick that off. But again, thanks so much for all your questions and comments coming in. Appreciate you listening. If you can, give us a shout out and a review on iTunes or Google Play. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next month. And uh, with that, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen. And on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. <laughs>